Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between award-winning poet Saeed Jones and AWM program director Allison Sansoni. This week, Allison talks with writer and disabled rights advocate Kia Brown about her essay collection, The Pretty One. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. I'm reading an excerpt from my book. It's called Can We Sit for a Sec? And it's about my love for chairs. That's all you need to know to get started. Um, Okay. Let me scroll up. My longest relationship has been with chairs. We are very happy together, committed and strong, in sickness and health, till death do us part, etc. There are arguments and disagreements as in any relationship, but we try our best to make up before nightfall so we don't go to bed angry. The notion of love at first sight is a little cheesy, but true. Chairs and I have traveled around the world together. My chairs are loyal, with vastly different personalities, but an equal amount for, but an equal amount of appreciation for the bud of mine that sits in them. A few of them like to play it cool. They don't want me to think that they care as much as they do, and I let them believe that it's working. After all, sometimes you have to let your partner think they have the upper hand to work for the long game of what you want later. However, you and I, we know the truth. The chairs in my love, the chairs in my life love me, and I honestly can't blame them. My favorite place to canoodle with my boo is at the mall. I love shopping. It brings me the kind of joy that I imagine having a child brings a mother. Shopping is euphoric for me. It's my personal treat after a long day. When I am shopping, I always feel like anything is possible, like the world is at my fingertips. I have, I have bought a few items I've forgotten to wear and have found them months later with the tag still on them. In my new clothes, I feel like I am debuting my best self to the world. I like to wear them where I have enough people who will see me. Because if there's not enough people who see you in your cute outfit, did you wear one at all? I enjoy the audience I often receive just for existing in these new clothes. I don't care who stares. Strangers are often looking for a show for me anyway, so why not give them one? If I'm going to stand out, at least I'll look cute while I do it. New clothes are great for all of those reasons as well as for the options of pairing them with the beloved older pieces already in your closet. And of course, the smell and feel of new clothes is a beautiful thing. When I am at the mall, I often ask myself, what can I buy that I certainly don't need? Ice cream, a cookie, a pretzel, definitely all three. How many items of clothing can I buy without trying them on? The record so far is four full outfits and a cute pair of shoes. Because you can never have enough of the thing that brings you comfort. When I give in to my body's protests, I find refuge on the benches outside of my favorite stores, despite how immensely uncomfortable that they are. And they seem to be proud about it. These benches are not technically chairs, so they don't feel the love for me. They don't care for my comfort. And I try not to take it personally. I also aim not to spend too much time on them. But desperate times call for desperate measures. 
And my aching bones don't care about my strained relationships. I liken these benches to the kids in high school who spend so much time trying to convince everyone that they don't care about anything or anyone. Yet in their attempts, it is clear that the opposite is true. Trust me, I was one of those kids. If you don't need to rest with the help of chairs the way that I do, you're lucky. Not in the sense that I'm unlucky or the people who do are unlucky, but because the ability to navigate the world without giving a second thought to accommodations must be so nice. In the event that you do, welcome to the club. I know how exhausting life can be, but maybe someday we will sit next to each other in the comfortable and soft chairs that we deserve. The chair that I am most committed to is actually a deep brown couch in my living room at home where I do almost everything from TV watching to writing about TV and talking to the people who star in the TV shows. I often choose to sit on the far left of the couch because it has been the kindest to me as the most comfy part of the couch. I am sure that it is just a section that has gotten used to my butt by force, not enjoyment. But she never complains either way. Now, this couch, let's call her Vivian. Trust me, she looks exactly like a Vivian. Vivian isn't into PDA. She keeps to herself. She's very quiet and demure, but she's confident. She gets me in a way that the bench from the mall does not. She cares about my comfort and well-being. And she doesn't push me to spend money that I don't have. I love her in the way that you do a well-worn partner, in the way that you do someone who truly cares about you. Though she isn't as old as she seems, she expects more of me the way the people closest to you do because she knows my potential. Sometimes when I can get away, I have a tryst with a seat I'll call Paul. Paul is your everyday movie theater seat. He's comfortable and he likes to cuddle and be the big spoon. I imagine he'd wear flannel and chop wood if he could. Maybe light the fire for our fireplace if we had one and you know if he were a human person. Or make me coffee with one cream and four sugars just the way I like it. At night, we would, the night would stretch on but we, would, but we are not yet tired. He is adventurous, but he prefers the indoors. We have a lot in common. He loves films as much as I do, and he hates bugs. I can never recline my seat too far, though, because no one wants to fall asleep on a first date. While we are busy believing in movies and in the world that I want to create in those movies, the previews stop, and the real movie stops, and the real movie starts, excuse me. But when we are together, it is so magical. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Kia. This, I wanted to start by asking, uh, this morning you met with some uh, school students from- They were from adorable. Oh my goodness, you guys. A <laughs> hundred school students from our write-in uh, education program. And one of them asked you, uh, something I'd plan to ask you, which is what inspired you to write this book at this time? Um, like I told them earlier, I wanted to write the book that I wasn't seeing. I spent a really long time in my 
childhood and early adulthood really uncomfortable in my body and really uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, I have a disability and, and people wouldn't like it. And so I didn't like it simply because I thought I wasn't supposed to. And so in writing this book, it was both an apology to that person who was so sad and depressed and didn't like herself. And it was also a way for me to teach people um, about the identity of disability and what it's like to live in my own disabled body and help change the perceptions that people have about disability. So it was as much um, a love letter and an apology to my younger self as it was just trying to give you know, publishing and the world at large a place to start with disability. So the, the essays cover a really wide range of topics. You know, you write about disability, you write about activism, you write about your family, you write about beauty, and um, you write about pop culture. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the places where you did see yourself and where you found inspiration. Um, I think for me, it was in childhood. So I'm a really big fan of like Tia and Tamara Mori, sister, sister Mary Kate and Ashley, you know, because I'm a twin. So I found myself in their twinship. And then I also found myself in Riders and Hammerstein's um, Cinderella with Brandy and the late Whitney Houston, which is the best Cinderella. Like, don't at me. It is the best Cinderella. Um, and I found myself there. I found myself in characters who were loved and who had skin like mine, who were black and who were women that people, you know, looked up to and thought were beautiful. And that was really great for a long time because it felt like enough for me until it wasn't. When I was rereading the, the essay this afternoon about the ponytail. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, you know, how everyone in their teenage years remembers feeling ugly, feeling like they didn't fit or they couldn't do what others did. Mm -hmm. And how universal that theme is to young people, particularly young women. And I was wondering, did you feel you had any guides along the way that helped you understand the world as a teenager? Um, I think my mother, um, she tried as best she could. I think it's a little different when you're disabled because when you're somebody who's not, but you love somebody who's disabled, you can't really give them the lay of the land because you don't know it, you don't live it. And so for me, I had a loving family and and they were so supportive and they tried really hard to make me feel like I was just as valued as them and I was. But I found that when it came to, you know, puberty hit and I was like, ooh, people are attractive, but they're not attracted to me. It was sort of a, it was like a culture shock because I grew up like my childhood thinking, you know, not even knowing technically that I had a disability because I was like, oh, I, I'm like everybody else. Nobody ever said anything until I was about 12, but nobody ever said anything, you know, in terms of you're disabled and this is what this means. And I think it was because my family was so keen on not allowing me to feel different in a bad way that it sort of backfired when I got to about 12 because I was like, oh, this person made fun of me in the cafeteria. And suddenly I realized that this thing that I have, first of all, is visible. Second of all, is a thing that people might not like. And um, so I didn't really have anyone to look to to give me some sort of advice or let me understand how it is 
to na- like how it is to navigate the world as a disabled person. But my mom tried. Bless her heart. We love her. <laughs> who are your uh, Who are sort of your your beauty and culture inspirations now? Oh my gosh, there are so many. First of all, Zendaya. She never loses. Every single time I see her on a red carpet, it's just just wonderful outfits. And I don't like. I think her stylist is Luxury Law, and they're brilliant. And I would love to be in like a custom Christian Siriano gown. I really love his work and the way that he not only champions different bodies, but he understands how to dress black women. And like, I just think that that's fantastic. I mean, there are a lot of people doing really good, good work. I would always want to be, I've always wanted to be in like a Zach Posen gown as well. I'm a gown person. Like, I'm, as you as you could have guessed, I'm like a big poofy, that's me, big poofy gown. The closer I look to Cinderella, the better, honestly, um, which is, you know, convenient since I love that movie so much. But yeah, there are a lot of people doing great work in fashion, I think, but it's about making it accessible so that everybody can wear those clothes. And people need to, they need to think about the customer base that is disabled people and start catering to our bodies as well. The, the book is a really personal, vulnerable one, and you're, you're putting yourself out there as someone who wants to be known and who wants to be loved. Can you talk about the, the process that, by which you learn to sort of open yourself up mm-hmm. that way and, um, you know, put yourself out there in some of these essays? Um, a lot of the work that I did before the book, I tricked myself into thinking no one was going to read it. So I was like, you can say whatever you want because no one's going to read this at all. Like, who would read it? And then when I started to gain an audience, I was like, oh, no one's reading your tweets. It's fine. And then I was like posting in these publications. I'm like, no one's reading your articles. It's fine, Kia. Just do whatever you want. Um, and even in writing the book, I tricked myself into thinking that only my five friends from college and my mom and sister were going to read it. So I was as honest as possible and... For me, it is really hard because I didn't realize how vulnerable I actually was in the book until I was reading Goodreads. You should never do that as an author. It's not for you. Trust me, it's not for it's not for me either. And I like read like reviews of that people. There are certain aspects in the book that um, people were questioning, and I wanted so badly to be like, no, but here's why I did it. And then I realized that when the book went out into the world, it's no longer just mine, and so. Whatever it is that people have to say about it, whether they love it or not, I mean, whether they love it or not, and I love it, so that's all that matters. For me, it's just that it's no longer just mine. So whatever it is that people feel or think about it, I have to let them do that without trying to interfere. And so for me to be vulnerable was to tell the story that I believed in, and because I still believe in it, I'm good, regardless. What, um, what, of the reaction to the book, what has um, what has surprised you in a good way? Oh, um, Deepak Chopra blurbed it. That was wild. Okay, <laughs> that was amazing. Um, and I think the coolest thing so far is that I was able to do my big launch events. Um, I did one in New York City with Ashley Seaford, who I am a super fan of. And I did one in L.A. with Roxanne Gay, who also blurbed the book. And I really spent the entire event being like, I need you all here to know that this is happening. And, like, please take pictures so that I can have proof that I'm sitting on this stage with Roxanne Gay right now. And it was just this, it was the coolest 
full circle moment because their work in particular really got me to this place. And even when I was writing tough parts of the book, I would stop reading. I would stop writing and go read Ashley Seaford's like her Tumblr posts from years ago, and I would get back to work. So to be able to thank them in person and at my own book event, it was really like bar none, two of the best nights of my life. Did your writing, um, you, so you wrote before, you know, you, you obviously did a great deal of work before this book and yes. you're, you're working on other things now, but during the time that you were working on this book, what did it teach you about writing and how did your work change while you were working on I this? I love that question, first of all. Um, it taught me that sometimes you have to write even when you don't want to. There's never going to be a perfect time for you to sit down and write. You just have to make it work when you're, like whenever you can get it in. I don't believe that you should worry about word count, but I do believe that some days you're going to wake up and you're like, I don't want to write today, but you're on deadline, so you have to do it. And um, I really struggled with the last three essays in the book because I knew what I wanted to say, but I didn't know how I wanted to say it. And really, it just took me being like, all right, here's what you can do. You write for as long as you can and then you can listen to Paramore or you write as long as you can and you can get some cheesecake or you write as long as you can and you can buy something online you know I was just trying to always reward myself on the days that I didn't want to write because I knew I had to anyway and that's what I learned about writing it's just that you really got to do it even when you don't want to even when you're like but can somebody do it for me no you have to do it yourself one of the students asked you this morning, do you ever feel like giving up? And what did you say? I said last week. <laughs> I said, yeah, last, last week. There isn't a time where you, stop, where you stop feeling, you know, at least in a little way, that, you know, I want to give up, I want to stop. This is too hard. Um, but for me, what's worked is trying to push through that. It's like the small rewards, the, you know, you can do this for an hour if you write. You can do this for an hour if you just go to this thing and do it. Um, so yeah, I wanted them to know that like, no matter how successful you get, you'll always have a point in time where you're like, hey, I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. But for me, it's about doing what I love. And because I love this so much, even on the days when I don't, um, that's what pushes me through. And so yeah, I wanted them to know, like, he was like, when was the last time you wanted to give up? Last week, literally. Yeah, <laughs> literally last week was I was just like, ooh, I'm exhausted. I don't even want to go anywhere. I just want to sit in my pajamas and watch Lifetime movies. But I couldn't. I had stuff to do. So, yeah. <laughs> what are you working on right now? I am doing a lot of things. Um, I'm working on a, a novel. It's my first YA. Um, I'm doing some secret film and TV stuff. I am working on a children's book as well. So I'm trying to keep busy, stay busy, and like be proud of the things that I'm creating. Well, not to out myself as a, a Twitter stalker of yours, <laughs> even though I completely am obsessed with your Twitter feed. I appreciate that. And I love if, my Twitter. if you're not reading her Twitter feed, you really, really need to. Yeah, it's I mean, fantastic. Go in knowing that like I'm a mess and you'll be fine. <laughs> But one of the, the things you I think you mentioned on there was that you, you really wanted to do another cover story. So yeah. if you could profile anyone, Ooh. who would you like to profile? Oh my gosh, I'm totally going to cheat. So I really want to do a profile of Alien AJ because they came back to reinvent pop music and 
I mean, I just have taste, so I want to talk to them about it. And I also, I would love to talk to Gabrielle Union. I would love to do a cover story on Tessa Thompson. And she's friends with Bree, so maybe Bree could put in a good word for you, girl. Um, I would love to talk to Oprah. Although I would probably do terrible, because I would be like... I love you so much. You mean the world to me. And she would be like, all right. The question so. is, you're amazing. Yeah. Like, well, she'd be like, so where does the question start and stop? I mean, come on now. Uh, but there's so many people that I think um, I really, I would love to interview Christian Siriano just, just to get inside of his head and, and understand what it is that he does because it's magical. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of people that I would literally love to sit down and talk to and then have it run somewhere. Like, I really want to write a cover story for Elle and Marie Claire U.S. Because, I, I mean, I've done Marie Claire U.K. That was amazing. Like, literally the best. But I also want to do it in the U.S. So who, um, we talked a little bit before that um, about who you're, who you're reading now that inspires you. So who are some people that, um, that are working now today that you really are inspired by or think are just doing great work? There are so many people doing so many fantastic things. Um, I just finished Jasmine Guillory's Royal Holiday that comes out October 1st. I'm, a, I'm big into romance novels. Um, she's fantastic. Her, her Twitter name is literally the best Jasmine, and she is. Like, I completely agree. Um, Brandon L.G. Taylor, is, his novel comes out. It's real life. That comes out in January. It is It's just flooring me. I mean, page after page, I'm just absolutely enthralled, and I love his work. Um, there are so many people coming out with books this year that I think everybody's going to love. And, of course, I'm blanking on their names because isn't that how this always goes? Um, but, yeah, there are so many people doing great work in romance and in novels and in nonfiction. So if people could take one thing away from, um, from this book, what would you want them to take away from it? Um, I want people to read the book and think about the ways in which they interact with disabled people. And if you are disabled, I want people to leave the book, I mean, whether you're disabled or not, really. I want people to leave the book feeling good about themselves, and I want them to question the way they see the world and the people in it. That would be ideal, yes. All right, we'd like to open it up to questions, if you'd like to raise your hand. I love your skirt. Hey. It is um, super cute. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here. I'm so thank excited you. to hear you. Team. I just want to you could be could talk about the hashtag disabled so cute sure. and um, how the what you thought of the responses to that. Um, yeah, with uh, disabled and cute, it was really it started out as a celebration of myself, and so I wanted to mark the moment that I felt really good in my body and the, and that feeling stayed. You know, over the years I had these like passing feelings about like, oh, I'm cute and then I would immediately be like, no, you're not. You're, you'll never be like blah, 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 blah. But what helped was that it was like at the end of 2016, like right after Christmas, I started saying four things that I liked about myself in the mirror. And that allowed me to say them as many times as I needed to to believe them. Um, and so when I got to February 2017 and created the hashtag, it started out as this way for me to 
mark the occasion of really loving myself and, and liking myself and feeling good. And it became a place for people to have community where they could celebrate themselves and each other in the process. And so that was like the biggest thing I could have ever asked for. Hello, Kia. Hi. I, I was introduced to you through a podcast, Hold Up. Oh, uh, intersect them. intersectional feminist podcast. You were on the Never Been Kissed episode. Yes, I went to high school with those uh, those ladies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been following you uh, for your work. I um, my question is about um, intersectional feminism and the fact that as a woman of color, a black woman growing up, growing up in the USA with a disability who's also child-free, which I, when I read it, uh, I was very excited. Yeah. <laughs> Squad. Yeah. Um, when you carry so many different identities, mm-hmm. I feel that it's been my experience, just as a, a black woman in this world, that being female and being black are things that everybody can see. Those are not things I can hide. Mm-hmm. And so people's reactions are much more straightforward. And although disability is the largest minority in this country, why is it so hard to get representation in our pop culture and in our, in our media? And what would you like to see in the future for the next generation of young people with disabilities, especially that fit other boxes of intersectionality, what type of role models would you like to see for them in pop culture and in media and movies and fiction, et cetera? First of all, that's a fantastic question. So thank you. Um, I think people are scared. And so that fear leads to, you know, exclusion and it leads to often violence which is so heartbreaking i think people are so afraid of people who don't look like them and they're afraid to live in a world where people are happy being themselves and don't feel the need to fit into this eurocentric beauty standard um and for me with regards to representation i would really love for future people and myself included because you know i am who i am to see stories where disabled people don't die for the service of an able-bodied person and they don't die at the end of the movie and we live to the end of the book and we get to have love and we get to live a life that we're proud of. I think what I want so badly is disabled characters who aren't plot devices for somebody else. I want disabled characters who get angry and who get sad and who are happy, but you don't, it doesn't, there shouldn't be an extreme. I think it's like right now we see disabled characters who are white and they're, they're often wheelchair users and they're often cis males who dislike themselves. And I think that's fine because that's somebody's lived reality. But the fact is the disabled community is such a vast community that we're only seeing specific stories and that's the problem. And so what I want for the future is a more fully realized disabled character or characters because I'm tired of being the token thing in somebody else's story. It's not romantic that we want to you know, kill ourselves. It's not romantic that, a, that an able-bodied person is like, oh, I love this person despite their disability. That's just disgusting to me. I think for a better future and more you know, human and inclusive entertainment can only happen when we discuss disability and can only happen when we change the way that we're talking about disabled people. Thank you everyone for being here tonight. Thank you, Kia. That was wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation between poets Ross Gay and Eve L. Ewing who will chat about Gay's most recent collection, The Book of Delights. 
Now go, be inspired, and find the might of a writer in yourself.